Linux Academy is one of today's sponsors. They cover cloud, DevOps, containers, orchestration, and other emerging tech that you've heard us talking about on the Packet Pushers Network. Whether you're flying solo or part of a team, wide-eyed noob or hardened pro, Linux Academy has training options for you or your team at linuxacademy.com. What is your cloud strategy? There's so much talk about the public cloud, but there's plenty of use cases for private and hybrid cloud, too. Have a listen to today's episode as we sort out what implementing a cloud strategy truly means for your IT organization. The data knots are in your data center, breaking down your silos. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our data knot shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for data knots spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at data knots underscore show. I am Ethan Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall, who once slapped an AWS VPC so hard he created a new availability zone. Joining us today is Rita Younger. Rita, would you just introduce yourself briefly? Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what your job is, what you do. My name is Rita Younger, and I'm the National Practice Lead for Software Defined Networking and Network Analytics at CDW. What I do is I lead the pre-sales as well as the post-sales teams, the delivery teams, through this transition into Software Defined Networking, along with application dependency mapping, network analytics, things like that. I've been a network engineer for over 28 years. <laughs> you have the scars to prove it too, I bet. That's exactly right. I always have to say that because people assume I'm not technical. No, I'm very technical. So what are the kind of conversations you're having with customers then? What, what problems are they trying to solve when we, when we talk about cloud and their cloud strategy? Well, whenever I talk to a customer, I ask them, what is their cloud strategy? And I haven't met a single customer that has a cloud strategy. One claimed to, but the truth was, he said, well, we just give all of our developers credit cards and we allow them to do whatever they want. Like That's the definition of no cloud strategy. Right. The cloud today doesn't just mean public cloud. And I think we still tend to think of public cloud, but it also means private cloud. And then of course, private and hybrid cloud. Customers need to understand this. They need to know that they can build a private cloud and have the same benefits that they would have with public cloud such as the ease of use, the self-service, the accountability, but they can do it and they can do it at a lower cost in their own data center. Well, in that context, what does the typical customer network layout look like? Because uh, I'm imagining that might be a challenge if they're still using a three-tier architecture. Yeah, I've been the national practice lead for the last four and a half years. And during this period, we've been transitioning customers from a three-tier architecture to a leaf spine architecture. Because most of our traffic, 70 to 80% of traffic, is application to application traffic, we definitely need to move those customers from three-tier to leaf-spine. Okay, so that you, when you say you're moving them to that leaf-spine architecture, which we've had, we've talked about that on Datanauts, what exactly that architecture looks like, the benefits of leaf-spine and so on. But you're actually seeing that their application infrastructure on the back end, they've moved to that traffic pattern where... They would benefit from leaf spine because they've got those east-west flows. You say they've got those app-to-app flows. Now, I'm curious if you're actually moving in there because they need it. Did they know they needed that? Did the customers actually understand their flows pretty well? Or was that something that you had to dig out for them? There's no customer that understands their traffic flows. And I can definitely say that. The reason is, is application dependency mapping is a lot of work. 
And if you're doing it without some type of network analytics platform, by the time you figure it out and put it on paper, it's changed. So that's where the need for network analytics comes into play so that customers can see that their traffic is east-west traffic. They can see those flows going from an application to a database to an e-commerce server. And they can also see the outliers. They can see the traffic that doesn't belong. Like what about traffic that's coming from the internet and is directly going to an HR server? That's probably an indicator of an advanced persistent threat. So customers have not been aware of this. Corporations have not been aware of this. And until recently, we haven't really been able to shine a light onto that network analytics. Today, there's lots of network analytics platforms available. Well, then I think it poses the question as to what changes for the physical infrastructure, especially when cloud is introduced, because you're talking about the change from three tier to leaf spine. You know, I guess I'm curious what other changes should be made or just stay as is. Is it all a software play and you're just adding things on top like pizza toppings? Well, leaf spine architecture just makes sense because it's optimized for that east west traffic. A leaf spine architecture is also deterministic. The entire leaf spine architecture is treated as one fabric. So I often think of it, think of a Nexus 7000, for instance, or a 9500. With those platforms, you basically have the fabrics, which are on the back, and those fabrics kind of act like the highways, right? The more fabrics you have, it's more like lanes on a highway, the more traffic goes through. Whereas, you know, on the front end, you have the line card, so you have all of the ports, Now, if you take that and you expand that, think of it, think of the leaves as the line cards and think of the spines as the fabrics. And you can start to kind of visualize the whole leaf spine fabric is just one great big switch, making everything deterministic, all uplinks are active. Everything is one logical hop away from server to server and two physical hops. So Leaf spine architecture is definitely something we look at. The other thing is the logical network. So the overlay often dictates the underlay. So what I mean by that is, do you still need a core switch? That can be determined based upon what the logical network is. Do you need border leaves? What's your layer two out going to be? Or is it going to be layer three out? Actually, let's, let's dig into that for a second, Rita. So you said, do I still need a core switch? If I've got a leaf spine network that could be used for, let, let's say, my data center, that's where all of my app-to-app traffic is happening. You mentioned border leaves that would be at the edge of my leaf spine heading off into some other part of the network. I could have a, a core that's still off to the side that is interconnecting other parts of maybe my campus or my wide area network or the internet. Is that, that what we're getting at here? That's exactly right. And consider other parts of the infrastructure, such as you're still going to need physical firewalls at some point. So you're not going to do all virtual firewalls. We typically will still have virtual firewalls at the edge. Sometimes we'll have a core switch if we're going to need to do things such as terminate MPLS links, or we're going to terminate layer three there. So there's all kinds of reasons. And again, it's per customer, it changes per customer based on the logical design, how we're going to design the physical network and what they're going to need. Because you could, I suppose, terminate some MPLS circuits into the leaf spine directly, but it kind of makes it awkward for certain natural divisions you might want to have for security and so on. Exactly. Exactly. And, 
you know, maybe there's a need for VDCs or maybe there's a need for OTV. So there's all kinds of various reasons that will change the physical design. It's not a one size fits all, but a leaf spine architecture is definitely the direction to head in the data center. Now, whether we need border leaves, whether we need core switch, again, depends upon logical design. What kind of speeds are we seeing from the server to leaf switch interconnects? There's been a lot of talk about 100 gig, but I'm curious as to how many people actually need that much bandwidth or if the cost is at a point now where it's one of those things, eh, just go 100 gig. It's cheap enough and you'll probably use it eventually. Yeah. You know, I've been a network engineer for a long time. So I remember when one meg was like, oh my gosh, we'll never need that. Think about the amount of content that's video content, the types of content we're seeing today. That is going to drive a need for higher capacity, higher bandwidth. Consider the density of servers is getting greater and greater. And if we have very dense servers, we can put more virtual machines, more logical servers on those physical servers. We need additional capacity. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't sell a leaf switch today that didn't have the capability of being 10 gig or 40 gig on the downlink. 100 gig, we're seeing that type of traffic from switch to switch. And have you guys seen the new 400 gig switches? Ooh, yeah, right on, right on the those edge. Those things yeah. get me so excited. <laughs> I got to touch one. I was so excited. <laughs> wow. So you mentioned 1040 facing out to the uh, servers, the, the, the host facing links, and then 100 gig going in between switches pretty often. What's the uptake been on 25 and, and 50 gigabit per second speeds, Rita? Yeah, there's a lot of switches available today that have the ability to go 110 or 25 gig downlink to the servers and even 50 gig downlink to the servers. If I were to position a switch today, the minimum I would do is 25 gig downlink to the servers. I would go 40, 100 gig switch to switch because servers as they're coming out have higher and higher capacity. If a customer is going to purchase infrastructure, they're going to have that in place for five years, seven years, and believe it or not, some will have it 10 years. So (laughs) let's make sure any switches purchased today have those capabilities. So 1, 10, 25, 50 on the downlink. Yeah, I used to work for state government. I can believe that there is network equipment that will see a 10-year service life before it's uh, even thought about being retired. That is the way of things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, y'all seem to be coming from the land of riches. I'm still talking to folks that are trying to get off one gig, and y'all are like 400 gig. I'm sitting here swimming around like, man, I really want to touch some of that. (laughs) Especially for a server. Like, oh my gosh. It does bring up a question that I had around the servers then that are plugging into this. And I'm thinking around the changes that are going on with the physical model for hyperconverge, you know, Nutanix and folks like that that are... You know, reader, you're talking about high density, man, they can cram a lot of stuff into a small enclosure. Is that adding complexity, causing siloing, distributing skills across network heavy areas? Because I'm thinking about first hyperconverge, but then also software defined networking products like NSX and you know ACI and how they're inter- interfacing with these products. It just feels like it's gonna make a technology soup for anyone that wants to specialize in just one thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually, ironically, I have a session I'm doing tomorrow called HCI and ACI together. So funny you would bring that up. Hyperconverged, it's a great thing. It doesn't replace the need for software-defined networking whatsoever. Nutanix works perfectly fine with NSX. It works perfectly fine with ACI. And I don't 
think of it as bringing complexity, it brings a different skill set. Network engineers today need to understand security. They need to understand servers. They need to understand storage. And although we're moving this direction of automating, having that background and the skill sets acquired over the years and the understanding of the full data center is just a critical capability because we do need to break down these silos. Traditionally, we've had all these silos within the data center. So we've had network, server, storage, security, and we need to think of the data center as a whole. So even at CDW, we've had kind of a little bit of struggle with that because we've had such specialized engineers over the years. And now we're creating an entire overlay of people who really have that deep understanding of the data center as a whole and how it all works together. So it's not bringing complexity. It's just bringing a need for a skill set that understands more than just a single silo. You know, seeing as how the network stack often lives for a long time without hope of upgrades or replacements, or, you know, like new hardware, it makes sense to size for what might today be deemed as aggressively high, you know, like 100 gig, who's ever going to need that? But someone said the same thing about 10 gig and even one gig back in the day. So I would look at, you know, aggressive bandwidth values today to handle the workloads that are 10 or even more years from now. And I'll take that 400 gig, please. What about you, Ethan? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole other show there about do you begin to buy cheaper hardware that you can recycle every two or three years instead of every seven to ten years. But anyway, that's a different show. Uh, my takeaway today, it's never one size fits all, right? Uh, Rita mentioned that you got to tailor a network for what a business needs. That said, it could be one size fits most with a bit of tweaking. How do you figure that out? You got to know your flows. Not knowing, and Rita mentioned so many of your customers really have no idea what's going on with their app flows inside the data center. Not knowing, that's really not cool. I mean, Leaf Spy Networks, they solve specific problems dealing with app-to-app traffic and having predictable latency and other things. Do you have those problems? I mean, a lot of data centers do, as Rita pointed out. But do you have those problems? How do you know? How would you know? You should have a good answer to that question. We will be back to the episode in just a moment. But first, Linux Academy offers an awful lot of training for people like you. Technology topics include cloud, Amazon Web Services, Azure, Google Cloud Platform, Linux, security, DevOps, containers, OpenStack, and big data. You'll consume those topics with courses, real hands-on labs, cloud servers, flashcards, a course scheduler, a Slack group, and more. Now, perhaps you're a cynic and you want to try out Linux Academy before plunking down your hard-earned money. Well, check out the free Community Edition. That gives you some valuable free content and a few features and the chance to see what you think. Perhaps some of you work in a team at a company. Well, there's a team option for you. And a team account at linuxacademy.com comes with a reporting console, assessments, the ability to group teams into subteams, a management console, and customized learning paths where you can put quizzes, certified courses, and a performance-based assessment into an order of your choosing and then measure how well your training program is going for your team. And what you should see when you take those measurements is that your group is keeping up much better with technology as it changes, rather than getting stuck in an operational rut. Find out more at linuxacademy.com. And now let's go back to today's episode. All right, y'all have definitely added more acronyms to my lack of networking knowledge. I appreciate that. 
But Rita, let's talk about private cloud. And actually, let's talk about the characteristics of a private cloud so that everyone kind of can baseline as to what we're talking about. And just kind of spitballing a few things. You know, does cl- private cloud mean you know, APIs or automation or orchestration? Is it any one of these, a combination thereof? The platform is yours. What do you think? Yes, yes, maybe yes. Um, <laughs> Excellent. It, we can it, move on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> does it mean APIs? It can mean APIs. You do not have to touch a single API to build a private cloud, but it can meet APIs, especially when it comes to integration. So if you're integrating different products together, such as you're using UCSD, for instance, and you're using ACI and you're using ServiceNow, sure, using APIs will help with that integration. Does it mean automation? Absolutely, it means automation. But does that mean you have to do the automation yourself? Heck no. I can code enough to get myself into trouble, but that's about it. But what it means, what automation means, think about this. Once you've virtualized your servers, so you're using VMware, Hyper-V, whatever it is, you're actually automating the spin-up of those servers. When you use vSAN, you're virtualizing your SAN, you're automating the SAN. When you're virtualizing the network through SDN, you're automating the network. But at that point, you still have three silos. You still have server, storage, network. You layer on orchestration. When you layer on orchestration, that's what takes it from a software-defined data center to a private cloud. So when I think of orchestration, I think of the conductor of an orchestra. And the conductor of an orchestra doesn't say, percussion, you play. Now strings, you play. It doesn't say that. What the conductor does is the conductor waves his hands or waves his wands and all the parts play together. If you think of that visual, that's exactly what orchestration does. So orchestration says, hey, I need a server for this workload. And the orchestrator goes behind the scenes and it spins up server, network, storage, all behind the scenes. So the orchestration piece is that secret sauce to getting that true self-service data center. Hmm. Orchestration, absolutely part of a private cloud, and you can write it yourself, but you don't have to. I would not want to write a lot of private cloud stuff myself. Although, does it mean at the end of the day that operations folks like like us folks don't have to touch the infrastructure anymore? Or is there still some hands-on aspects in your mind for private cloud? Where we're going you know, we've heard all the terms intent-based. Cisco's not the only one using it. Appstra's using it. I've heard all kinds of people using intent-based so that we don't have to manage in a hands-on manner anymore. So we can go through, or as the operators, we can go through a web portal and say, we need a server with this much disk space, this much memory, and it spins it up in the background in a matter of minutes just like when we go to AWS or just like when we go to Google. So those are the types of things that we'll get from a private cloud. I have only a handful of customers who are actually there today, but I have a whole lot of customers that are on the journey to get there. What are some examples of the products your customers are consuming that would come under the heading of private cloud? ACI, UCS Director, Cisco Cloud Center, CWAM. Those products on the Cisco platform and then on the VMware side, 
We have things such as vRealize Orchestrator Automation, NSX. So we have all the same type of products on both of those platforms. And then we see things like Big Switch, which is bright box, white box, that they're kind of approaching it from a different direction. They're taking what are called VPCs. Now, don't laugh. VPC is virtual private cloud. That's not a virtual private connection anymore. So VPC, we're kind of reusing that acronym. And that means taking that things that come from AWS and using that in on-premise data centers. So their approach is a little bit different in that they're taking, you know, kind of the public cloud strategy and bringing it to private cloud down, whereas most of the other ones are taking, you know, what's always been an on-prem data center and reaching out to make it more like the public cloud. Yeah, we actually talked to Big Switch about that, their cloud-first networking strategy and so on on Data Nodes 142. So interesting that you brought uh, brought them up. Any uh, open source that you're seeing in wide deployment, uh, OpenStack, or uh, you can fit Kubernetes in there perhaps? Well, everyone should have an eye on Kubernetes. Kubernetes is definitely something that we're going to see a lot of in the future, just because we need to be able to move things from on-premise to multi-cloud, not just hybrid cloud, but from cloud to cloud to cloud. So we're going to see a whole lot with that in the future. As far as OpenStack, gosh, you know. (laughs) Be brutally honest. Ah. I was going to say be nice. (laughs) Well, you know, customers got fooled into thinking if they could do it themselves for free, it would cost less money. Right. We've got all these big vendors who are creating products so that they work and they integrate. If you're trying to do it yourself with OpenStack, sure, you're not paying for the software, but you are paying for it in time, painful time. So yeah, it's great conceptually, but successfully pulling it off is a different story. And someone express it as um, either you pay a vendor to build you, you know, your, whatever solution you want, or you become the vendor and you have to build the solution you want. It's like, guess how many customers the vendor has? A lot more. Guess how many customers you have? Just you, you know, so... Can you imagine the amount of money in research and development that's spent at companies like VMware and Cisco and Big Switch? And that's a heck of a lot for them to build these products. And then companies get, you know, convinced that they can just do it themselves with OpenStack? Mm, no. So another qualification question for you, Rita, as we define private cloud and what it means and doesn't mean and some of the product headings, does private cloud have to mean cloud software I own running on equipment I own in my own facilities, or can you still have a third party involved and somehow and still call it a private cloud? Oh yeah. It doesn't even have to be your equipment, your facilities. It doesn't have to be anything like that. We have a lot of hosting facilities. We have a lot of managed services where even CDW has managed services and hosting facilities. Lots of people do where it doesn't have to be technically on-prem on your prem or even on your gear. But it's still, you have responsibility for that equipment. You may have assistance managing that equipment, but it's still private cloud. It's your cloud. You're not sharing it with other customers. Ah, so that's the magic right there. The private cloud is it's yours. You're not sharing that infrastructure with anyone else. And I guess that is driven by specific business needs. There's a, a use case for that where you maybe don't want to consume public cloud because it is shared infrastructure. Instead, you would rather have private cloud. That's absolutely right. And 
there are some things that belong in the public cloud, but anything that's business critical, I recommend keeping that in a private cloud. We've all seen examples. One example I can think of is one of the, I won't say which cloud provider, but they were responsible for a big outage that affected the Chicago Transit Authority. So the company I work for is based out of Chicago. A lot of people take the trains and they all had problems with getting to work that day. So I think it's really important to maintain that private cloud, maintain responsibility rather than trust anything that is business critical uh, to anyone other than your own. I like the CTA example because I rode that for 16 years. So it's like, oh, you hit me right in the heart. Yeah, exactly. Where are we at with ease of use on private cloud, Rita? I mean, we mentioned OpenStack earlier. That's not the experience people were expecting when they realized, okay, this is a platform upon which I have to build the cloud. But a lot of the other products you mentioned earlier are more or less shrink wrap coming from the vendor. Are they pretty easy to use at this point? Yeah, they are pretty easy to use. And there's all kinds of information available, free education available on the internet. I mean, think about it. It's pretty much a crime what we're paying for a college education when they can get so much education for free on the internet. But I digress. The number one barrier to adoption of software-defined networking is education. Because Cisco was founded in 1984. Since 1984, we've been beating our palms on our chest saying, real engineers manage via command line. Like 1984, people. I mean, why are we still managing via command line? Why are we not doing things in an automated way through a GUI in 2018? Um, So the number one barrier is education making sure that people who, you know, they've been in the weeds at command line for so long, making sure that they understand there's a automated, better way to do things. In other words, the issue is as much the practitioners, the people that are used to old people like me have been doing things a long time, you said it. the old way, and not mm, right. moving into to, to the new way of doing things. You mentioned GUIs, we mentioned automation APIs earlier. Moving ahead means taking on those new skills, and private clouds are making that pretty easy to use and, and maintain that infrastructure. So that that's an operator perspective, Rita. Uh, just curious about the developer perspective. Is there are these people that – I mean, we're, we're an operations and infrastructure kind of show, but then the other half of this has become developers who need to utilize that infrastructure to deploy their apps. Are these private clouds pretty easy for them to consume? Absolutely. A developer, they don't care where they're consuming from. It's like a driver of a car, right? He doesn't care what under, what's under the hood. What they want is they want ease of use and they want to get things quickly. So whether that's coming from a private cloud or a public cloud, it's not going to matter to them. You know, there are issues if they're developing in a public cloud, having to recompile things to move onto a private cloud. We want to get away from that. We want to make it easier for everyone. So the developers, they really don't care as long as it's quick, efficient, easy to use. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that, especially when you talk about elasticity for private cloud. You're talking about kind of the developers. You know, it seems like kind of a reverse data gravity. They're too far from the data and they're trying to process it elsewhere. But when we talk about kind of building applications in general for a private cloud, don't you have to make sure the application is written to function in an environment that has elasticity as one of its properties? And then kind of feed that into some sort of orchestration level to make sure that it scales and stretches to be elastic. Kind of positing 
some of the more application level changes that are required to really embrace the positivity that comes from private cloud? Yeah, elasticity is definitely part of the definition of private cloud. And when we talk about elasticity, we can talk about a couple of things. First of all, it's reclaiming of resources that are not being utilized anymore. So the ability to spin up as well as spin down. So the ability to do that, the ability to move that workload from one location to another location where it's optimized. And this is kind of a newer area that we're seeing, that elasticity piece. And again, lots of vendors in that space. Turbonomics is in that space. They've rebranded it for CWAM as a Cisco uh, offering in CWAM. So that elasticity piece, very, very important. Hmm. As you know, we've been spinning up servers like crazy ever since VMware came along, right? Uh, absolutely. Many... <laughs> it's yeah. been the fun part. And it's really interesting. Like when we, when we go in and we're doing deployments and we're helping customers and we ask them how many logical servers they have, they give us a number. They usually have a good 20% more that they didn't even know they had. Having all these underutilized resources we can reclaim those with products that do just that, the elasticity piece. Can I also ask, are you seeing cloud bursting? You know, we hear about it in everyone's architecture slide. Is that actually happening? Mm. And for those playing the at-home game, it's, you know, where things automatically spin up in a public environment because the private environment is, you know, quote unquote, out of resources. Well, that's the promise of the future. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> very politically correct. I like it. All right. Yeah, that, that is, that isn't a lot of market texture. And you may have noticed a lot of times when products are coming out today, um, products are released in a very agile method that talks about what we're going to get eventually with the product. And a lot of products, they are going down that roadmap. It's something that's being very heavily worked on. Right now, there's a lot of manual processes that we can do that. Um, there's not a whole lot out there that I'm seeing that will actually automatically do that part, but it's coming. Fair enough. In our notes here, Rita, you mentioned accountability is another major benefit of private cloud. I think we alluded to that a little bit earlier, that benefit of you can't be in public cloud because it's shared infrastructure. Private cloud means it's all yours. You're not sharing it. And that ties into this concept of accountability. Can you explain that to us and then the, the benefit we derive from this accountability notion? Yeah. And accountability is actually more of a chargeback. So let's say a company spent $5 million in data center infrastructure. If the CFO said, who's using all that? Today, we'd have no way of saying who's using all that. Um, accountability with a private cloud, what that actually means is that you know we're able to see if we provision uh, a server, which then is also storage and network, for the operations department, we can see that that is who is actually using that. And we can see what percentage of data center resources over time the operations department has utilized. So what this does is this takes IT internally from being a point where we just spend a lot of money to becoming more of an as a service for our own internal customers. So it's accountability as in who are the consumers of these resources? If we're supplying a service to the business, we should know who's using them because those are the people who are actually incurring the expense. That's exactly right. So, you know, it's a lot of funny money, right? It's not actual money being passed back and forth, but it is a chargeback model and that we can see how many resources each department's using. 
you know, it breaks my old networking guy heart to say, but the, the CLI is becoming a specialized tool slowly but surely. It's no longer the place you want to live. If you're starting at the command line to provision something, to configure something, there's a good chance you're doing it wrong, all depending on the product that you're implementing. So how do you get past this? Well, you, you retrain yourself by teaching yourself how to stand up infrastructure, but never using the CLI to do it. How would you accomplish that task? And as you figure that out step by step, you're skilling up. You're learning all kinds of things that allow you to manage that infrastructure without having to use the CLI, allowing the CLI to become a specialized tool or a wrench, one of those things you pull out of your toolbox for troubleshooting and so on because it may be the most efficient way to solve the problem, even though it's no longer the most efficient way to configure the network. Chris, what was your takeaway? Well, first off, I love your takeaway. Obviously, the CLI is a sensitive, hot topic. I love it. For me, it was drawing the terms intent-based operations and, in my mind, declarative operations out of the conversation and putting a spotlight on that because it continues to be you know, the brass ring to grasp, if you will, especially when considering building anything, private, public, you know, new infrastructure. That's just really the way we need to be thinking as both engineers and architects. So can't underline that part of the conversation enough. Well, Rita, let's get to the, the the breaking down the silos part of our discussion here today as we dig into cloud strategy. We've had the discussion on Datanauts before about IT having to reorganize due to the cloud and what cloud infrastructure represents. I'd like to get a little practical here. I mean, you've been working with a lot of companies over several years now to help them develop a cloud strategy, bring up a private cloud. Are you also noticing organizational changes in these different companies that you're working with? What are they, what do they look like now if we're used to server or storage and network silos maybe? Or is that changing, morphing? What do these orgs look like? It is changing. And, you know, it's kind of like moving a ship. It takes a while, right? But I am starting to see changes. So whenever I'm in a meeting and we're talking about SDN, we insist that somebody from server storage network, as well as security, as well as the applications team, and if there's a virtualization team, that they are all in the room together. A lot of times companies will say, oh, we've never done that. We've never had us all together. That needs to change within every company. We need to see the data center as the data center. As well as I do see organizations looking for someone who is kind of an overlay, who understands all of the silos. So it definitely needs to be a lot more open, a lot more communication than we've ever had in the past. This old trouble ticket system of I'll spin up my server and throw it over the fence to you to spin up storage. Okay, now network guy, it's your turn. Those days are going to be over. I think people who, you know, all they've done is networking. They can hide in a hole. They can look for a job where they don't need to know more than networking. But I recommend if you're a network guy, get some cross training, go to collaborative meetings, get yourself some exposure because this is where we're going. You mentioned some some person who could play the role of um, like like an like an overseer, someone who understands all of the infrastructure, all the components. Could you describe that person a bit more? What you think that or the, or the role that person would play? The role that person would play is they need to see the they need to have the vision, the bigger vision of how we're going to automate and orchestrate all of these pieces together. So more of a 
well, I want to say CTO, but it's really just for data center. Well, I mean, it feels like like an architecture kind of role. Yeah, me. it's def- definitely an architecture role, but a data, cen- a data center architect, not just a network architect or a storage architect. Um, definitely an architecture role. But but they need to be, do they need to be deeply technical where they understand, I mean, to, to understand all the, how all these pieces fit together, you, you can't be any technical slouch. You can't just read the, uh, the white papers and go, got it. You, you really need to understand the impact of network latency upon distributed storage, for, for example. Exactly. And Ethan, I know, you know, you and I have both been in this business a long time and over the course of all the years, I've had experience in all the silos. And I think there's a lot of us out there who have had experience in all the silos. Our careers have transitioned and sometimes we were more server deep, sometimes more network deep. And so there are a lot of people out there. Now you still need the deep technical people in networking, but you really do need that overlay type of position, the architect, if you will. Could not agree more. And I usually find some simple questions can kind of pick apart who that person's going to be. Uh, for example, if you're just, if you're bringing up the, the topic of this architecture that you want to build and they're, you're talking to the person, their first inclination is, all right, what, what hardware are we going to buy? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't even <laughs> no, know no. what the plan is here. Like if you, if you ask someone, okay, well, what's our main goals? What's the strategy of this? I'm like, okay, that's, that's my person, or at least it helps me get a gut check to what you're talking about, Rita. So two virtual thumbs up to that answer. Yeah. And, it's not even about the hardware. It's what business need are we solving through this technology? That's the starting point. Exactly. So we have you know the the czar of architecture that's uh, you know ha- has has twenty plus years of, of wounds from storage and network and whatnot. Then you're going to need someone or someone's you know plural that handle the actual implementation and design of the automation and orchestration layer. Is that an automation or DevOps team is that you hire a person that, you know, speaks Klingon levels of developing, you know, kind of if, if we were to put it a different way, do I end up building an automation silo where it's just people that automate things or do I start kind of overlaying automation skills on top of my IT as it stands now? Well, what I'm seeing a lot of is I'm seeing a lot of network engineers in particular developing DevOps skills versus vice versa. And one thing that's really led that effort, um, Susie Wee's team at Cisco, they have all these events that are free, DevNet Express, uh, DevNet Create, for instance. And then they have the whole DevNet platform where you can get basically free education and on writing APIs and things like that. So I don't think you could just take somebody who's like a Python guy and put him insert him into this environment. I think it takes taking people with a network or server background, right? And then developing those DevOps skills. Like I said, I can code my way enough to be dangerous, right? You go on GitHub, you find some scripts, you modify those scripts. And then I attend some of the free events. And when I ever find free time, I get my hands a little dirty with some DevOps stuff. So I think that's a smart direction for anyone to go if they're looking to fill one of these positions. Hmm. Good point. Analytics is another topic that uh, that I love talking about here on Data Knots because we've all had, like we've had our silos, we've had our little analytics silos too. Ooh, the network management station is all green. I don't know what you storage guys are seeing, but, uh, but it's all good here. And then there's no cross-referencing of that data to come up with a holistic picture of what's actually going on in the data center. 
So, so Rita, give me an example of analytics done right in a cloud environment, because again, there's no complete picture of app delivery if we're all staring at our own monitoring screens. And, but but you throw that cloud abstraction layer on, and I think the problem potentially gets even worse uh, unless you do cloud analytics correctly. So have you seen a customer really get this and do it well? Yeah. Um, network analytics is one of the, the biggest me too that's out there right now. I cannot tell you how many customers have jumped into this network analytics game. When it comes to network analytics, the only place in the data center that has visibility into every single packet is the network itself. So there's all kinds of companies out there with different solutions, some requiring sensors or agents, some not requiring it, some lightweight, some not. Network analytics, you can think of it a couple ways. It can be used to actually look at the hardware, make sure everything is up and running, that we're not dropping packets, that we don't have anything going bad. Network analytics can also be used for application dependency mapping. So the network is looking at every single packet that crosses the wire. It knows where it's going from point A to point B, and it can show us that application dependency mapping. Network analytics, I have a word of caution about this. If you look at a product such as Tetration, which is Cisco's network analytics platform, it's a very high-end product. It's based on a Hadoop cluster, does big data analytics and your real-time analytics. It can do that application dependency mapping It can help us write our policies um, to secure and get us into a a true whitelist model for security within the data center. But what I've seen over the years, I used to work with network analytics before it was even called network analytics, is that unless you're integrating those network analytics products with other things, such as ServiceNow, for example, unless you're integrating those and really taking advantage of all they have to offer, there's a danger that they'll become shelfware because the amount of information that's put out by network analytics platforms is so great that it really requires, now let's take this information and really make this information usable and meaningful. And so, you know, just kind of that that word of caution that I think it's absolutely required to have network analytics, but don't go into it thinking it's plug and play. That's not the case. I know I have been in this exact situation where there was a great big spend done on this analytics platform, but because the business did not also assign appropriate staff resources to that tool, the tool became, as you described it, shelfware. So are you getting at, yes, it needs people to make it go? Is that the the magic that uh, keeps it from being shelfware? It needs people. And it also needs integration, which may be additional services hours. So, you know, I'll just take Tetration just because that's one of the the biggies that are out there. It needs integrated into ServiceNow or integrated into ACI. Okay, so there's there's a bigger point here then where there's a lot of data coming in, but unless you are using that data in some some way within another platform so that there's context for the data, it's just numbers. That's exactly right. And you don't want it to be like the boy who cried wolf, right? Where you've got so many alerts going on that you just quit paying attention to them. So yes, we need somebody who's responsible for that product. We need someone responsible for monitoring. monitoring. We need to really sit down and we actually do this with customers before we'll even you know think about doing an engagement. We sit down and we have a workshop and we talk about all the use cases and all the different points of integration. And while, you know, we flat out say to them, 
if you're going to spend the money on this product, let's figure out how to best utilize the product before you even cut a PO. We're not even going to go there Mm. until we know exactly what your use cases are going to be and you're going to make the most of it. Yeah, because they don't want network analytics necessarily. They want to solve a application performance issue or something or hold the line on some SLA, you know, and therefore you need the product. Yeah, it makes total sense. Exactly, exactly. Let's go a little bit of a different angle here on the whole private public cloud and and what needs to change. Let's talk about management, The you know, the... <laughs> With the Dilbert cartoon with the guy with the triangular hair, uh, you know, everyone has that boss. But does that does that level of the organization need to change or does it change from what you've seen? Yeah, I've you know, one of the things that I do see is a lot of times the technical decision makers are not so technical. Um, So we're talking about complexity beyond just purchasing hardware and making it work. So at the management layer. I do think it's, you know, a lot of people who came from a network, not just network, an engineering background, also have very good business sense. And so I think management really needs to embrace an executive level, really needs to embrace having these types of people who have that kind of double background, both business as well as technical, to really understand the direction we're going. Because I think the engineers, you know, if you've got somebody who is making a decision that we're going to do orchestration and automation and they have no technical background, but they've just been sold the business case of it. I think that's a little bit harder to sell down the line than if the person who is the technical decision maker really is technical. Well, Rita, maybe we could wrap the show here with, uh, with some, some mistakes or lessons learned. Do you see organizations making mistakes regarding their teams when they shift to cloud, how they deal with people, uh, war stories or lessons learned, things that you've run into, clever anecdotes? <laughs> war stories. I see, and this almost goes back to what I was talking about with analytics. I see a lot of people purchasing product without really understanding what it does, how it's going to work, and how they're going to implement it. They have budget to spend and they just spend the budget and they go, Oh, now what do we do? What the, what are they doing there? Just they just swallow in vendor Kool Aid without really understanding what that product's meant to to do. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and promises promises from marketing architecture <laughs> that aren't there yet. So, you know, I get into, into situations all the time where I get a phone call and say the customer says, "Well, VMware told us this, and Cisco told us this, and Big Switch told us this." Rita, can you come in and sort it all out? I'm like, ah, I would rather have been there at the beginning because guess what? I'm going to I'm gonna make somebody angry, right? What I'm going to recommend for you, Mr. Customer, is what is the best thing for your environment, regardless of vendor Kool-Aid, right? So I'm going to recommend the best solution to fit your needs. But if you call us in after the fact, that puts me in a really bad position, but I'll still, I'll still talk to you about it. So I would say, you know, Swallowing vendor Kool-Aid, absolutely. Purchasing without thorough thought as far as how it's going to be utilized, you know, and do some research, talk to third parties. You know, my job, coolest job in the world, I get to research when I'm not traveling or other things or speaking with customers. I get to research all day long and I get to test things out in labs and I get to get my hands dirty so that everyone else who's in the weeds just trying to keep the business running, they don't have to do all that. 
Well, Reedy Younger, I think this is a good place to end our show today. Now, I know you've got a uh, you've got a webcast and a blog, and uh, and, and just let people know how they can follow you. Yeah, my webcast is totalpackets.com. Um, my daughter, who is 22 years old and is also a network engineer, she is my partner on the webcast. Uh, we interview technology leaders. We have a focus on women, minorities, and young people in technology. So a little bit different, and we film on location quite a bit. So I'm at SDN underscore girl and at Total Packets. Thank you very much. Again, TotalPackets.com to see more of Rita and uh, and her ideas about networking. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. You can reach me on my about page at EthanCBanks.com. Chris tweets at Chris Wall, and his blog is WallNetwork.com. For more of our Data Not shows and lots of other podcasts about IT, visit PacketPushers.net. Because at Packet Pushers, we do cover the full IT stack. We are professional career development. If you'd like to support us, you can become a member at ignition.packetpushers.net. It's exclusive analytical content, industry commentary for only 99 bucks a year. And until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindle spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. Mm-hmm.